You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, I had a thought yesterday, which was pretty soon I may have to add on to my building. I'm glad I'm not in California. Wow. You've got acreage. Well, you've got square footage. How many? 13,000? We've got got 11,000, just under 11,000 square feet, but we have two acres of clear level land behind the shop that we can build on. So if you did add on, what would you put in it? Some more office space, some more bathrooms and an actual kitchen. Our shop Mm -hmm. doesn't have a kitchen. We've got two bathrooms and then we've got basically a utility closet with a sink in it. And we've installed our coffee maker and things in there so that they're by the water source, but there really isn't a place to prep meals We've got a a fridge and a microwave and a counter in the break room, but not actually a kitchenette of any kind, no dishwasher, nothing like that. So it'd be nice just for employee quality of life to have a kitchenette. Oh yeah. I'm a big fan of really nice home-like kitchens in businesses. Why would it be any different? If you're a homeowner, you certainly, and you have the funds, you'll change your kitchen and you'll you'll resurface it and do all that fun stuff. And so why would we not do that here? I think it's worth it for the sake of the employees. I'd probably be more in favor of a sort of stainless steel commercial kitchen sort of vibe, not so much homey countertops and cabinets, but just easy to clean, easy to keep clean, very functional and modern. Hey, you should put that up to a poll in your company because I've polled the company a few times on different things. In fact, there's a poll that went out today. So they found a bunch of boxes. We have a storage bin out back and we take all our stuff. We're doing construction. So the stuff that's in the way of the construction, it goes into a storage container. When construction is done, it goes up on the mezzanine. And they had all these remnant boxes that we had purchased for some reason at some point in time, which no longer served any purpose. So my guy, Elliot, took the initiative to sell them off. I think he got a couple hundred bucks for it. And he said, what do you want me to do with it? I said, buy everyone lunch. So a poll went out and apparently it's pretty much like a three or four way tie. And so one of my guys, Wyatt said, what's that for lunch options? Yeah. For lunch options. Yeah. So right now it's between our local barbecue place and Chick-fil-A. Oh, boo. Well, what would you go with? If you have a local barbecue place or a national chain like Chick-fil-A, there's no question you choose the local barbecue place. Okay. So in most of the country, that is the right answer, but you have to understand Chick-fil-A is a novelty for us, at least in Simi Valley, because we just got a Chick-fil-A, what, two, three years ago, something like that. So for us, Chick-fil-A is like the greatest restaurant (laughs) that Simi Valley's arrived. And our barbecue joint's been here for 20 plus years. It's been sold. I think it just got recently sold. And it's not great. There's other barbecue places that are probably within a 30 mile, 30 minute drive that you would go to before you went to our local barbecue place. Okay. So, now knowing that local context, which you yeah. did not provide before the question, I would yes. say go for it with Chick-fil-A. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you hear there's construction in the background. We're getting fire sprinklers. It's funny because it's been a kind of a source of frustration for me. First of all, dealing with wood, mm-hmm. which has very, very wide tolerances that just rubs against my soul. And then just the flow that contractors and subcontractors use to get the job done. There's so much inefficiency. Lean principles is nowhere on there. It's just, it's not, they don't even know. It's like on a different continent. And so I come in with a different set of glasses and I'm just like face palming it like every other day going, why are they doing it this way? Why are they doing it that way? Have you had that kind of experience, whether you go into another shop or maybe you're gone for a little bit or your shop kind of drifts that off lean drift? Sometimes off lean drift. I don't spend that much time in other people's shops. I worked as a commercial painter for a few years after college and I had grown up doing a bunch of woodworking. I got into woodworking long before I got into machining. I didn't get into CNC stuff until I was an adult. And certainly on commercial painting sites, you get to see a lot of the other trades, drywall and electrical and guys who are doing plumbing and masonry. And a lot of stuff on modern construction sites is breathtakingly broken mm-hmm. in terms of how much material gets wasted, how much time you have to spend waiting on other people, and then just the amount of time you see other people just not working. It was amazing to me to see, in some cases, 
other trades where we'd be on the job at seven and we'd work till six. And other trades would be on the job at 9.30, hour break at lunch, and then off the job site at two. And I'm like, you were here for half a day. Right. And you're not done in that next big room yet. And until you're done, the guys can't put the drywall up. Until they put the drywall up and there's time for the mud to dry and sand, we can't paint, which Mm -hmm. means you slacking off and only working four hours means we can't come back till next week to do the last room in this building. So we got to make a second trip to Ohio to do that last room and then drive back. It's insane. Mm -hmm. So we would often, as painters, we would try to wait to the last possible moment because what always happens is if you go in while other trades are in the building and you work for a little while, you get some things done and then somebody else drives a scissor lift into some freshly painted wall you just did. And then the super has to get the drywall guys back. And that may take a week or two for them to come back and patch that wall. Then you've got to come back and reprime and repaint that wall because you can't just spot it. It's new construction. They want a clean sheen on the whole wall. And it gets to be crazy making. And then at the very end, when everybody's done and you've painted everything, then they go through and give you a punch list of all the stuff they need you to come back and touch up. And oftentimes that punch list is damage that happened to the building after you painted it the first time. Hmm. And so it was normally our MO to wait until the last possible moment. We would try to leave painted walls at risk in the structure for as little time as possible. And that would keep our punch lists a lot shorter. It would make sure that we weren't painting drywall work that had been done at 9 p.m. the night before where there were still moisture issues in the wall. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of things where if you were always nipping at the heels of the contractors in front of you, you would actually create more problems for yourself than if you waited till the last minute, shortly before your deadline, showed up with four guys, painted for 14 hours straight, and then did the entire place in like one shot, slept in your car in the parking lot, which I did a number of times, and then finished painting in the morning and then drive back to Indiana. Yeah, wow. That work mode was driven by a lot of things just being broken. And that would be like other contractors would be delayed by materials they ordered not arriving. Or the number of times that we got the wrong paint delivered to the job site, like right color, wrong sheen, right color, right sheen, half the quantity we ordered. So we can get partway around this showroom and we can't finish it today. Or just all kinds of stuff like that would happen. And it was a major problem. There were a lot of hassles. There was no standardized work that I saw across almost any of the trades on those kinds of job sites. Right. Yeah. I just came across a Paul Akers. Paul Akers' YouTube channel, he must have hired someone to populate content because it's starting to fill up. He's doing shorts now, things like that. It was a construction company and they went out and they showed one of the construction trucks. Their trucks and their trenching and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. And all the Kaizen foam. And I go, yeah, this is just what you do. Why would you do it any other way? I suppose like if you're not exposed to lean, even the pursuit of efficiency, it's just not there. Like for example, this fire sprinkler guys, they they were supposed to be here yesterday. They actually showed up And they said, oh, whoops, we can't work today because they loaded the wrong pipe on our truck. And so you drove from LA to here with the wrong pipe. You didn't check. And now you're going to go back and then you're just done. You're just done for the day. So it's really hard for me to, I don't know, like even put myself into a mindset of considering doing that. Like, no, we hustle when we make mistakes. It's red alert. We need to run. We need to fix it. That's the only time we really kind of deploy the speed tactics. We bought our first house in 2022 Mm -hmm. and it was new construction. And then this summer we had to have all the vinyl plank flooring in the whole house replaced because the installers had left out the padding layer that's supposed to go between the subfloor and the plank. And so it was an improper install in the entire house. They just left a layer that was supposed to be in there out. And they had to come in and tear it all out. Now, I did not have to pay extra out of pocket for it. They damaged a few of our walls. So I do have some touch-up drywall and touch-up paintwork to do. But 
if you're a contractor and that kind of thing happens often enough, you can't not go out of business over time. If, you think, yeah. If every, if every job you work on is like hanging over your head for the next two years to find out if you're going to have to come back and totally redo the job you did because of something dumb, that's crazy making. Mm-hmm. Wow. So in that case, do you have any recourse? The house was still under warranty. So once the reason it even came to light was because on the ground floor, our house is on a slab. We have no basement. They had also not properly moisture barriered the floor. And so the plank flooring was swelling and buckling mm. when we'd been in the house for less than a year. Mm. And that should not be happening with plank flooring. So we had them come back and inspect it. And they pulled a piece up and went, oh, there's supposed to be some other stuff under here. And it's like, wow. okay, well, clearly this is not a case of my kids spilling too many juice cups on the floor. Sure. Clearly this is a systemic issue. So, I mean, it was mostly ground floor stuff. I think we only had one little spot of vinyl plank upstairs, but since they were replacing all of it and they had not put the proper layer in anywhere, they went ahead and replaced the vinyl plank in the upstairs bathroom as well. Mm. And then we just had to be out of the house for two days, basically, because okay. they were tearing up all the floor. Wow. And is it an inconvenience to me? Yes. Is it the end of the world? No. Should it have never happened? Would even the simplest of checklists have solved that problem? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. That would fall under just absolute gross incompetence. If you're a flooring contractor or subcontractor, you forgot the first step? Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Okay. Drives me up the wall. I had an experience about a decade ago in our, not our current house, our previous house. We were in it for three months. And one day I came home from work. I opened the front door. I stepped down on our new laminate wood floors and between all the planks, little geysers of water shot up and I went, oh, and I start walking around and the my house is squishy, it's squishy. I'm floating. I go, you gotta be kidding me. And so I just back out. I'm like, oh, and my next door neighbor was right out front. So he says, Hey, Jay, what's going on? You're right. I said, dude, I think we have a water leak. Our brand new laminate floors are floating on water. He's like, oh, I should have told you, we've seen this huge wet spot on the side of your house, on the stucco. I'm like, what? And the, we lived in like, I, they're <laughs> like glorified townhomes. Okay. So yep. the side of our house is essentially the fence of our neighbor. Yep. So we only have one side walkway, one patio. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, come look at it. Huge, probably a radius, this, probably an eight foot radius from the ground level of just wet stucco. Okay. So I, I just, I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do is call my insurance agent, see if he has any contractors or how do you do this? I'd never had this type of issue. Keep in mind, we just owned this new house just a few months. Yeah. It turns out in the whole development, there was a subcontractor that did the plumbing that they did the sub, what is it? The, the There's copper pipe that goes under the slab Yep. that was supposed to be in like a plastic sheathing to mm -hmm. protect it from abrasion. And to save money, they skipped it on every house in the entire development, probably 80 homes. Mm -hmm. And so the joke on our street was, have you had your slab leak yet? At this time, there were 14 homes on our street and nine of them had slab leaks. The others are just ticking time bombs. And interesting because it kind of ties into metal here, but it's always the hot water pipes because what happens when they get hot, they, they expand, cool. they cool. And then the length of the pipe is moving against like some type of rock or aggregate, something like that. And yep. then it wears a hole in it. And this happened on the side. So the thing is, I got unlucky because it's sub something sub slab pipe leak usually if you're lucky it happens in the center of your home mine was really unlucky it was near a wall and then the water just followed the pipe up into the wall and when we opened the wall it was just like someone left a i don't know like a trickle on at a faucet and it was just dumping it probably dumped i would say a couple hundred gallons over the time that it leaked Whoa. And we just didn't notice it. And we were out for like 
a month and a half. It was because of insurance and all that stuff. And oh, it had done so much damage to the drywall that they needed to dry it out. And that was like two weeks right there with a heater going 24 seven. So the joys of home ownership, I suppose. Yeah. Well, on a happier note, we've made a bunch of improvements here lately, several of which I'm pretty excited about. We've been reconsidering the layout of almost our entire shop. The machines are staying, the CNC machines are staying in place. But now that we're adding a full-time CNC programmer to the shop, we have not really enough front office space to create a workspace for three programmers because I'm it's me and then the new guy, Chris, and Nick, who's one of our machine operators who's learning to program. And so what we've been talking about is actually building a workspace on the main production floor where our, a lot of our holster assembly operations currently happen and simply shifting those operations to the back part of the building. So instead of holsters getting formed and trimmed and finished and assembled all in bay one, we're still going to do all the material prep and all the CNC work on those shells in bay one and then move them into bay two for finishing, which actually is going to allow us to put all of our buffing equipment closer to our main dust collector, which is outside the building in its own little outbuilding. And that'll shorten the run and should improve our airflow and our dust collection actually somewhat. And then those buffed shells will then go into bay three for assembly, which means right now we have some assembly in bay three and some assembly in bay one divided up by product family. And some of those products share some hardware and have some unique hardware to themselves which means that certain items that we use a lot of, certain screws and other things, we have some of the inventory stored in bay three with those assembly operations and some of the inventory stored in bay one with those. And if we move everything into bay three, we can combine and condense a lot of that inventory storage and have a better idea at a glance. Hey, the ERP says we have 5,000 of these. That clear bin has all of them that are in the building are right here. And it looks like our number is accurate or inaccurate. We've missed something. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, well, the ERP says we have 5,000. This bin's nearly empty, but I know that there are more of these somewhere else in the building, so it's probably not an issue. I don't like the imprecision of divided inventory, and we're mm-hmm. working on eliminating that. Has it been an issue? Like, have you reordered stuff but you, because you didn't realize it wasn't in the right bay? It hasn't so much been an issue that we reordered excess stuff because we didn't know we had more in the other bay. We have had issues where either the minimum reorder quantity wasn't correctly set on an item or something. And we knew because it was in more than one place, our our gut feel for how much of it was left turned out to be wrong. And the ERP didn't warn us. It's like, oh, it says we've only got 500 of those left. That must not be right. I'm pretty sure we have a bin of those in bay three and we go look at the bin in bay three and it's empty. And the only reason we found out was because somebody emptied the bin in Bay 3 and then came into Bay 1 to steal some more. And we're like, oh, wow, this bin's nearly empty too. (laughs) Wow. So that's happened a few times. And in most cases, it's not an emergency. It's just like, oh, we'll just order that and have it here UPS ground in three or four days. It's a stocked item from one of our vendors. Sure. But anytime that does happen, just the knowledge that when I look at certain physical bins, I'm only seeing part of the picture and I can't tell which part of it is without also consulting the ERP and checking a second location. Now, does your ERP, when you assemble something and ship it, does it decrement quantities out of a, a yes, bill of materials? Yes, we, yeah. we have to pick items. It doesn't decrement them automatically, which is one of the things I've been asking Fulcrum ERP for since we first got started with them, which is, hey, if I ship a Happy Meal, deduct a burger, a small fry, a small drink, and a kid's toy. There's no place where having to manually pick that inventory is really functioning as an extra quality step for us. Uh, I know in some cases you could say, okay, well, we're actually going to use the pick interface to make sure you consumed all the things that need to go in this. Mm. And that makes the most sense when the things themselves are sort of unrelated. Like you have an item, it has an accessory, that accessory also has a spare hardware kit you could easily put the completely correctly assembled item into the package, leave out the hardware kit and ship it. But most of our assemblies are very simple and we're building one thing. And so if you don't put it together correctly, it's not together correctly. You don't have a whole thing to ship until it's all there. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of our assemblies, we really just want when someone says, I'm making 20 of these 
and they hit complete on that assemble operation, we want it to pick four screws for each unit and four rubber spacers for each unit and a clear bag and a label and a warranty card for that unit and not make the person have to even click into the pick tab and then check the box that says pick all and then hit pick. Mm -hmm. We would like them to just have that happen automatically. Sure. Because that was one of the places where we had a lot of garbage in, garbage out early on as we were getting used to using an ERP was just when you're coming from a Kanban system where you're not tracking or consuming inventory at the operation level and you're only auditing your main supply in a stored location, it's just not a thing that the operators at the assembly tables are even thinking about. Like, Mm -hmm. I just built these. I need to remember to write down or note in some way that I used up this hardware. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we had jobs getting run and completed and some or all of the components wouldn't have gotten picked from inventory. Mm-hmm. And that was a consistent thing where for a while we built our own Google sheet where it would just look for jobs. We were using, I think we were using Zapier, but we were basically, we automated an outside report for ourselves that anytime a job closed and the estimated quantities didn't match the consumed quantities, the job would show up in the spreadsheet. And then we would use that to hop back into Fulcrum, quickly find the job and make sure everything was picked correctly. It was a manual process. It was tedious. We did it a little bit every day to clean up mistakes the operators had made until we got everybody on the same page, more comfortable. And for a while, there wasn't even a pick all button. If there were 15 items, you had to pick each line item individually. There wasn't even a check all box. Mm. Um, And now there is a pick all button at the top where you just go to the pick tab, you hit pick all, and it picks the estimated quantities that are needed to complete that number of units for all the components, which was a huge leap forward, but it's a faster way of for us doing a step that shouldn't have to exist at all. So I run everything I see in here and and, and just think through lean principles. And I'm thinking there's so many opportunities for a defect there to miss a checkbox or to check a box that shouldn't be checked. Lots of over-processing, certainly wasted motion. I would say that's not fair to your assembly team to have to do that as part of the assembly, because if it can be automated, eventually it should be automated. I'm really surprised that ProShop doesn't have that. We're not doing ProShop. We use Fulcrum. Fulcrum, sorry. That's what I meant. Fulcrum. Is this something that they say is coming or do they, so how does that work? This is one of the things where we have found, we've been with Fulcrum, it'll be two years in November, I think, that we are very much a corner case among Fulcrum's existing clients. And the single biggest way that we're a corner case is the time window between when a job gets created put into operation, and then completed and closed is often within a single calendar day for us. We don't have jobs on the schedule for next Wednesday. There's literally mm. nothing on the schedule for next Wednesday. I'm not even sure we have currently jobs on the schedule for Monday of next week. We are really using our inventory system for a lot of the items that we create and keep an in inventory internally for our fulfillment operation on a daily pull system where we are looking at actual consumption of orders in the previous 24 hours and using demand planning, looking demand forecasting mm-hmm. to create minimum small batches of each of those things to make sure we stay topped up, but that we're not making things that aren't going to ship for four weeks. I have no interest in spending time today making things that aren't going to ship for four weeks when I could spend time today making things that are going to ship tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so that approach of basically not scheduling any large long-term jobs in advance. And we're also not really sending things out for outside processing. We have a few parts that we send out for Cerakote or Anodize, but those are rare. Mm -hmm. And so most of our stuff, we stock the raw materials and the components. First thing every morning, we quickly hop into demand planning, sort items by urgency because they're color-coded, which we also asked for and finally got better Mm color-coding. And then just say, okay, these six line items, turn each of those into a job. We've already got minimum default quantities set, approve them, send them to production, print off a traveler to initiate the job at the CNC machine. We have a physical bulletin board, a magnet board with columns for each machining center that initiates jobs. 
And then we just drop those off in order of priority there. And the operators know they can just go to their board for their machine and work that column top to bottom till it's clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you gloss over something, color coding. Mm-hmm. Is this a product that has a color to it that you're trying to change? No. So in demand planning in Fulcrum, it will give you different color codes based on whether current demand takes you below your preset minimum number that mm-hmm. should trigger production, or if demand takes you below your available inventory to zero or below. And so there are some color codes that indicate the relative urgency of the demand the system is seeing. Mm-hmm. And so we sort those and produce the ones that are most urgent first. Sure. Yeah. Okay. But and for that yes. reason, we're turning these jobs around so quickly. Right. It's not unusual for a customer to send us a PO at lunchtime and have their job in production, in some cases done by 5 p.m. that day. And sure. that's not a rush job, stop the presses, change gears for everything. Most of our jobs are short. Mm-hmm. And so we just put it in queue next. Whenever the current job, which should be done in the next 90 minutes, finishes, we're just going to move this one to the top of the list, run this one next. Yeah, And that okay. means that a lot of how they think about scheduling and workflow and the kinds of things we want to see, they just don't hear those same requests from any of their other clients. When mm-hmm. we talked We've talked with a number of other clients. There's actually a sort of a private forum for Fulcrum users that we're in. And when we've talked about the idea of wanting the ERP to auto pick inventory, almost everybody else reacts with horror and they're like, no, 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 we don't want that. And I understand because the way that they're doing that is they are picking inventory at the start of operations. Oftentimes, like you get a job, it comes to you, you get a cart. You go to the inventory area, you pull 10 of widget A, 24 of widget B, and and you're picking the line items one at a time as you physically take them off a shelf Mm -hmm. and then go take them to an assembly area and put them together. So you're actually using the pick list as part of the operation to make sure you got everything before you leave the area of getting things from. Yeah. we have all of our hardware standardized at our bench, and we're literally only picking at the end when everything's done just to say, yes, we did actually consume all that. Yeah. And that to them is kind of on its head. I've had this discussion both like internally in my own head and with others. And I think there's really kind of three approaches to this. Number one, you go full digital where the asset management is 100% done by the ERP, MRP, whatever, whatever system you have. But then you're susceptible to garbage in, garbage out. The second one would be like a a lean approach, which is certainly what we do. So who cares if I have perfect knowledge that this component has a stock of 1,276? Why does that matter to me? The answer is it doesn't. What does matter is I need to order or make more when it hits 400 and I need to stop when it hits 2,000, that type of thing. And the third approach would be just like, what you just described the other people. Well, no, no, no. We want to be very hands-on. We want to be manual. And that works. And and it probably should be the the go-to approach when you're small, when you don't do large volumes, and you only have a handful of people doing it. And the volume of transactions is low because you can actually put physical eyes and hands on your inventory. But then what next? What's making the decision? Is the person making the decision? Certainly when it was just me and a couple of guys, it was my gut. And guess what? My gut, I didn't understand that it was wrong often. What I needed to know is look at historical data. How many do we sell? What kind of time does it take to replenish these? And then adjust that minimum number up. I don't think that ERPs are are great with that because they are so... Like I've thought about going with an out-of-the-box ERP. In fact, probably a, a year or two ago, you and I were talking about that. We were talking about the different ERPs that you had experienced. And for me, I just thought we're in... Category number two, we're going to a pure lean TPS type thing, and we're just going to worry about the minimums and the maximums, increment the minimums as the company grows. And what I've found for the since actually since 2017 is that you can literally take the growth rate, the percentage of your company, and every year apply that to the minimum and do what? Warp your minimums forward by that number. That's right. Yeah. So if you pick up a Kanban card, an old Kanban card in our shop, 
you'll see 50 crossed out to 70, crossed out to 85, and so forth. And then when there's no more room on the minimum line, we just create a new Kanban. By then, it's probably totally worn out and faded. But you can see like, okay, if the company grew 20% this year, we're going to up the minimum on all our Kanbans by 20%. And we have not had any problems or we have not been caught off guard when an order comes through and we're like, oh my gosh, we are rushing to make this part. So we were just coming off a really slow summer, like abnormally slow. Typically there's one month that's painful. We had pretty much three painful months in a row. And in that time, yes, it got slow. Yes, we made lots of improvements. We redid a bunch of fixtures, that type of thing. We brought on our horizontal. So we got to kind of slow, slow learn that, slow play it and think about what can we do instead of running this next job on the VF2 that we've run for five years. Let's see what it looks like to bring it over to the the horizontal. But in that whole time that we were kind of just trying to fill space, I think the biggest lesson that we took out of that is that we can produce faster, higher quality. We can do all of that, but the level of stress has come down. Like since I remember 2019 was a very stressful year because we had great growth that year. We were in a new facility. I thought we were doing everything right, but just the growth rate for that year just kind of caught us off guard. And if you look at us compared to 2019, we're like probably at least 3x, probably 4x higher volume than 2019, but it felt painfully slow, yet we had the same number of operators on the floor doing four times the work essentially with like almost half the pain. So you go, okay, that's a combination of better product, better processes, better automation machinery. We've obviously upgraded since then, but I go there. I feel like my gut tells me there's some other type of it factor that I'm missing. You, you know, you know, the things you know, and don't know, you don't know the things that you don't know. Like, what do I not know in this scenario? What's the other variable that is pointing to like four X productivity, half the stress there's some, we're, we're doing something else. So I can't point directly at automation. I think there's something else. Have you ever like thought through some of that stuff? Like, why are we doing better? What, what am I missing? What are we accidentally getting correct? Yeah. The, what are we getting wrong and not realizing it versus the, what are we getting right and not noticing it is an interesting thing. Cause that's the known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns mm-hmm. question. And what I get concerned about, I've been thinking about this recently. I had my Vistage meeting today with, with my guys in, from the Vistage chapter. We were talking about business growth. And I said, I felt like in a lot of ways, I was just having trouble keeping a handle on all the things that were happening in the company. And one of the guys looked at me, he's like, yeah, you've grown so much in the past two years. Of course, you're having trouble keeping hand, a handle on stuff happening in the company. He's like, your gut doesn't change as fast as your business has been changing. And it was really helpful to think that I shouldn't expect my gut, which is intuitive, unconscious, generally irrational, or based on certain kinds of quick decisions and assumptions that would regularly update like, oh, we grew 17%. So my gut, like my minimums, <laughs> updated 17% this year. <laughs> sure. No, that's not how that works. Yeah. My, my gut is stuck in 2018 mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Or even earlier. And it's equally as dangerous to have a failure and not recognize the source of the failure as it is to have a success and misattribute to this, the success to a thing that didn't actually cause it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So I've used that example. Like around here, we're pro failure. We're all about finding holes and, and thinking of better ways to do it. There's no advantage when you, let's take a carnival game, for example, and you put down your dollar and you get three throws. And on the first throw, you knock over the bottles. You're not ready for the major leagues. It's that type of thing. You just got lucky. And so they say, the, what is it? A broken clock is right twice a day. True. Yep but it's wrong 11 other times a day, depending on how, if you're going by the hour. Yeah. It's just one of those things where I'm far more fearful of the times when we accidentally or unknowingly get things right, because we just got lucky and we tried something that worked and it did. But then that, that, I feel that's a far greater 
that's far more detrimental in business than 10 mistakes. 10 mistakes means Henry Ford quote, or what is it, Edison? I haven't failed a thousand times. I've found a thousand ways it didn't work. That type of thing. Yep. It, it's growth related. So I don't know. For us, I'm just, that's what I'm kind of wrestling with. Like, what else happened here? And then we had a slow summer to kind of uh, think through. And I still don't have a great idea. Maybe we just are doing better. I think time will tell. Yeah. Yeah. I read a great book. I still have it. it it's uh, called The War in the Air. It's about the Battle of Britain and the RAF in World War II. And there's a funny anecdote in there. And it was a guy talking about a pilot surviving his first mission. And he says, he'll sleep poorly. He knows he's got a mission in the morning. He'll wake up. He didn't shave. He went to the cafeteria. He ate two fried eggs. He put on this jumpsuit and he went and flew and he survived the mission. And the next morning when he's got a mission, he's going to wake up, he's going to not shave, he's going to go to the cafeteria, he's going to eat two eggs, and he's going to wear that jumpsuit until it can stand up and fly the plane on its own. <laughs> and this idea that you just, you happen to do a variety of kind of unconnected, unrelated things and got the outcome you wanted. And now those things are linked together in your mind in a way that you cannot shake. Yeah. You know, I can't fly a mission unless I've had my two eggs. Exactly. Can't have three, can't have one, got to yeah. have two. And I'm yep. not shaving today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gosh, I just think of my baseball days. You know, uh, base, baseball is a game of failure, right? Like even a, a, a great major league baseball hitter, if he fails seven out of 10 times at the plate, he's in the hall of fame. Yeah. So when you look at it that way, there's so many superstitions in baseball. You look at just a batter in the batter's box, ready for the next pitch or fiddling with their gloves. And it's the same routine over and over. Baseball is so much about like getting into a routine that works like in micro routines. Like if you watch pitchers on the mound, they can throw strikes seven out of 10 times. But when a little tapper comes back to them, they got to throw the f first base. Their fielding percentage is terrible because they're throwing it, you know, in the dirt over the first baseman's head because there's not that type of routine that's been baked in. Yep. And same thing in business. Like, okay, we want to repeat a proven routine and get really good at it, but also be careful when those little tappers, those things that seem deceptively easy come back to us. And all we need to do is just toss it over to first base for the easy out. It's that type of thing. So I yeah, really I, enjoy disc golf and it's a, yeah, it's a topic of some humor that a lot of professional disc golf players have fairly elaborate and repetitive pre putt routines. Cause putting is basically any shot where you're trying to actually sink it in the basket. It's not within Disc golf has greens in some cases, but you can basically shoot at the basket from anywhere you can see it from. Got it. And so guys are often putting from 80, 90, 100 feet away. But when they're close and they're really going for a precision putt, a lot of times players will have this elaborate, like they, it's, it's almost like a pump fake. They just pump fake over and over and over. And then they finally throw the shot and miss it sometimes. And what's funny about it is there's got to be some way to do statistical analysis on any given player and say, they hit X percentage when they prep for five to eight seconds and then take their shot. And then anything more than eight seconds of prep, they start getting in their own head and their accuracy, their completion percentage on those putts goes down. Yes. And actually in disc golf, you're allotted 30 seconds from the time it's your turn to make your shot and you step up to where your previous disc throw ended or your, your lie. Mm. You've got 30 seconds to stand on your lie, prep your shot, and make your shot. And if you don't do it in time in a tournament, your card mates can call you for a penalty stroke. Mm -hmm. And it's not done very often, but there are certain players who are notorious, just notorious for taking forever to throw their putts. <laughs> and when they're making casual rounds, there are some funny videos that have gone around of certain players where you know one guy on the card got kind of annoyed and every time this other guy went to putt he started a 30 second timer on his phone with a loud alarm and the guy's standing there and he's ready to putt and he's ready to putt and then he stops and sort of like resets his feet and shifts his weight and he like does his dry strokes and then he stops and shifts his weight and then you hear ding 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 ding, ding in the background he's like what was that he's like that was 30 seconds nico that's good stuff man and and those kinds of I understand wanting routines. Sure. But when they become just so over the top, like, okay, you've done your routine nine times now, just throw the disc. Right. Yes. I'm tempted to want to do that with some of my machine operators. <laughs> what? 
timer. Yeah. Since, now, since the light starts flashing green. That's fine. I almost always, when I'm sending in something for the, I've proved it out. I and mean, we've got to production code. We're ready to run the first part of the first production run. I have kind of a hiccup, a tick where I hit cycle start. I make sure it's going where I expect it to go. I pause it before the, the tool feeds in and I just double check the vice or the clamps one more time. <laughs> just on the first one, I don't have to do it every time. Sure. But on the first run, first cycle start, I often be like, yeah, I tighten that vice, cycle start, it's a feed hold. Yeah, okay, yeah, I tighten that vice, That's cycle funny. start. Gosh. Yeah. So Pearson, obviously you can see my logo right here, but there's another version, Pearson Automation, and that's yep. our VAC watch, which is under that brand. And that kind of got put on hold in 2020 because we couldn't get microchips. And so a lot of those digital products kind of got put on hold because just there was, just, uh, we couldn't get supplies we needed and we had to uh, recode, re recomponent ties, our boards, mm -hmm. things like that. So anyways, one of the things that we're working on is not just a VAC watch, but like a, a machine watch. I, this, I'm just throwing out like a working title, but that does have like a load cell sensor in a vice jaw or a proximity sensor that we can drop into our PPS or MPS just to make sure like multiple lights are green before hitting cycle start, actually making it so you cannot push cycle start without throwing an alarm if oh my gosh, I forgot to close the air valve or I didn't tighten the, the vice to the proper pressure, that type of thing. And it'll be like the, the VacWatch 2.0 version, but it won't have the word vac. Vacuum will be one of the modules that you can monitor, but it'll be one of those things where it, it, it'll save thousands and thousands of just silly mistakes of forgetting something, even by a seasoned machinist like you or I, where it's like, yeah, I know it's good to go. I'm going to send it, but let me just check one more time. And then we take that down where we can not just qualify, but quantify it. Is it binary? Is it ready to go? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Oh, there's not enough coolant. This would have run out of coolant right away. That type of thing. So that's one of the products we're going to release. Nice. Yeah. Trying to figure We've, out pricing, uh, trying to figure out like integrations. Did you ever yeah. hear your VAC watch hooked up on your brother? It's not hooked up yet. We've been working on a few other projects. One of the main ones is we are hijacking the CTS plumbing in order to supply 100 PSI air blast through our spindle. We have, I think I've posted about it on Instagram. We had, we're using a little Sylvan air knife yep. in a lathe adapter that Easton at Moria made for me that mm -hmm. chucks into a Maritool BT30 end mill holder for a three quarter mm -hmm. inch shank and allows us to basically lock the spindle orientation, treat the air knife like a face mill, and then take an in-the-air pass back and forth over our part after machining to blow off any offcuts and chips. And it's cool, but because we're hijacking the CTS system to pipe all that in, we're running into certain alarms in the CTS system because there's like a, a CTS pre-fill tank and a few other things where if you've got that system active and you're using those M codes, it's trying to check for back pressure and check for fluid level. And it's doing mm. some things that it's wigging out when we're just running air through it. So we don't have that project fully done yet. Right. And we're waiting to mess around with the VAC watch until that's all done. And the air knife is standard. It's going to be built into all of our production programs. Sure. And it's going to make running our R450 machines should make them faster, easier, and more consistent and less messy at the operator door. I'm excited about it, but yeah. we want to make sure that we're supplying enough air pressure. What I was told actually is that sort of the rotary union has to have a certain minimum amount of pressure to stay locked shut and stay airtight. And if we underpressurize it, some air can bleed out inside the spindle and potentially damage some things. Hmm. So when CTS coolant comes through, I think the CTS on the brothers comes through standard like just under 500 PSI. Mm. So we're already putting the air through it at significantly lower pressure than that. Sure. And so if certain things in that system require interior pressure to stay tight, we need to make sure that we have a, an inline pressure sensor that will not allow us to turn that thing on. If for some reason the air compressor popped a fuse and it's winding down and our shop pressure is dropping and we don't realize it, we don't want that airline to open up and 
put 50 PSI air through the spindle and cause a problem. Mm. Wow. So still working on that, talking with brother. We're going to have to probably mess around with the ladder logic on those machines a little bit and basically just have it ignore those alarms, not display them, not stop the machine for them, just clip those out. So, and, and, and this is something that's, what's nice is brother is actually working with you on this. They're not saying, nope, it's going to avoid uh, the warranty or anything like that. I mean, your machine's probably out of warranty anyways, but they're helping you facilitate this. They're at least helping us figure it out conceptually. And certainly if we want to, this is the thing when you deal with a Japanese machine that's got US staff, but also works through a distributor, in this case, Yamazin, there's some distributed responsibility and liability over who's willing to answer which questions for sure. you. Sure. Yeah. And yep. certainly if we were doing things that were wildly unsafe, oh yeah, I want the spindle to grab an acetylene welder and come down and just like turn the torch on and do crazy stuff. Everybody would say, no, no, no. But we're talking just about putting air blast through an existing system that is designed to handle coolant at a much higher pressure. Mm. So we're not running an engine past the red line. We're not putting tires on that are oversized. We're not doing anything crazy like that. We're just substituting air for coolant. Yeah. And so they've been willing to talk to us about how it works and have been willing to talk to us about other ways that other customers of theirs have implemented similar-ish concepts. But in terms of them actually showing up on site and helping us work through it, no, they're not doing okay. that. What's funny, when we bought our Haas UMC 500, I had said in one of the videos that was public facing that I was excited that we could run a compressed airline through the, what would it be, the B axis, mm -hmm. and then use a rotary union for the A axis, and we could plumb the table through the center of rotation with compressed air for different fixtures. I that video that went video. live, and a few days later, a Haas technician showed up and said, hey, I'm here to look at the UMC 500, and we're like, we didn't call you. What are you talking about? Well, let me look. It says, verify that the customer did not install through table air valving. I went, what? And he said, yeah, someone said we need to come out and make sure that you're not running air through the table. And I said, why? And he said, because it'll void the warranty. And whoever did this ticket is concerned that you're going to void the warranty and run air through the table and then make a video about it. Okay. Well, someone at the factory prompted a host technician to show up. And I said, no, I'm just saying I'm excited as I did the walk around that we could do that. But once it's out of warranty, I will still consider doing that. And I think we, we still haven't yet done it. We've got yeah. applications where we probably should. But no, it's just one of those things that like it's refreshing for a machine tool maker to get behind you and say, yeah, you want to hack it? You want to like hook up a couple Arduinos? Yeah, we'll help you out. Yeah. To, I mean, to a point, I understand. I deal with this myself all the time in our customer service, which is where customers want to do weird, odd, sometimes unadvisable things with gear that we've made. And there's, for me, there's a bright line between things that I look at and go, ah, I wouldn't do that to things I look at and say, you should not do that. Yeah, sure. That modification is unsafe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that line is really clear and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's actually a little bit more about the customer than it is about the actual modification. Because there are some people who will do modifications very, very carefully and thoughtfully, and then will test them and check them and make sure everything's cool. And there are other people who will just take a Dremel and a pair of pliers to something you've made, goober it all up, mm -hmm. and then immediately put a live gun in it and go running around someplace. Right. And you get a sense when you're dealing in customer service, you get some sense for whether or not the person understands your reservations. And sometimes I'll say, I can't stop you from doing that. I don't think it's a good mod. I don't think it's actually going to benefit you that much. And it will compromise this function of the holster, or you'll lose this feature if you mm -hmm. change it that way. But I can't stop you. It's your product. You yeah. bought it. Yeah. And in other cases, I would say, you should not do that. That is an unsafe modification. Mm -hmm. Do not do that. Mm -hmm. And usually in those cases, if the person seems insistent on wanting to do a thing that I am convinced is significantly unsafe, mm -hmm. oftentimes, whether they're within their return window or not, I just say, I don't want you to do that. And I'm happy to have you return that holster that you bought a year ago for a full refund 
because I don't want you doing that with a product that we made. Yeah, right. And usually they don't take us up on it. Sometimes they make the bot anyway, sometimes they don't. Yeah. But we generally don't tell people not to mod things if Mm -hmm. the mods are reasonable. Okay. Because there's a lot of reasonable mods to make. There's so many. Anytime you build something as complex as a CNC machine, there are so many reasonable mods to make. Sure. It reminds me of a phone call. It had a contentious tone to it because the customer said, hey, I want to buy one of your vacuum chucks, but can you saw it in half for us? And I said, well, we, we can pretty much do anything, but go on. What are you thinking? Well, if you could just, just saw it, it, it's 14 inches wide. If you could just saw it at the eight inch mark, I'll only use this, the existing center and right hand air inlet. And I said, well, it doesn't quite work like that. If you saw it in half, there's channeling in on the inside of, of our vacuum chucks. And so it would just leak once you put vacuum to it. And it got contentious where he was saying, I don't understand. You're a manufacturer. I'm asking for a custom modification. Why can't you do it? And I said, because it, you don't have the full understanding of how of the internals. Well, send me a model. I'll take a look. That's proprietary information. And it just got so weird. And I said, look, I, I would love to help you. I would love to supply you. But you're asking for something just so far out there. And I would like to buy a Tesla. I would only like the front half of the car, please. Yeah, that type of thing. (laughs) Sure. Now we've had people say, hey, can you add some drilled and tapped holes so I can do like pull studs on the bottom? Absolutely. Here's what it's going to look like. We've done that in the past. In fact, we get the question quite often. We're going to, in the next generation of vacuum chucks, have some different like pre-board holes and tapped things so that people could put adapter plates on them. But this was just like, literally, like you started by telling me to throw it in the dumbest machine we have in the shop, which is our saw and cut this beautiful piece of anodized <laughs> aluminum in half to a uh, saw cut edge. And you're going to JB weld it. <laughs> so, well, the world takes all types. I know. I know. 